You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's guest speaker will have Hussein Kanji, co-founder at Hoxton Ventures, of which seven companies that they've invested in so far, two already IPO'd. And in this episode, we'll talk about this high investment to IPO ratio and how they managed to achieve it. Also, they'll discuss how Hussein moved to London from the United States and why he did that. And also, we're going to talk a lot about IPOs. So, Hussein, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Hoxton Ventures. Yeah, thanks for having me on, on the show. So, um, I'm an American, as you can probably tell by the voice, but I've been yep. living now <laughs> in the UK for uh, almost 15, 16 years, so, so quite a bit of time. And when I came out here, I joined a venture capital fund, which is a reasonably well-known US fund called Axel. Um, got embedded into the tech ecosystem here as as a result um realized that you know the uk and 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 more broadly speaking europe were were in a pretty good position to actually produce interesting valuable tech companies kind of in the in the next 10 20 50 years now a lot of it because you know the global tech companies that we kind of take for granted the facebook's the google's um uh, the app stores or the iPhones, et cetera, all made the world so much more flat, which means that innovation can come from anywhere and, you know, you can scale from anywhere. Uh, and, and so on the back of that thesis, I, I left Axel, I formed a fund, which is Hoxton, uh, and we began investing on the basis of that thesis. And, and all of this is, you know, with the backdrop of, I spent the first kind of probably 15 years or so in, in the Bay Area, in California. I, I grew up in New York City and I moved across to California largely to get away from everybody who's in my high school. I went to this overly competitive high school in, in, in downtown New York, um, and everyone was going to Harvard, you know, Yale, uh, MIT, et cetera. And I wanted to go far away from those people. So I went to a, a school that was not on the radar at the time, which is, which is Stanford, but also a very good school. And has since become, you know, harder to get into than, than, than Harvard in that sense, um, largely because the tech industry, I think, has been booming. Um, but I moved across to California, kind of, you know, ended up getting embedded in the tech industry just as by virtue of going to Stanford, uh, did a few startups um, and then moved across to, to Europe. And so kind of a lot of our thesis is, you know, what can we do really well in Europe that we've already kind of seen happen in America? And then how can we connect the companies that we're seeing in Europe over to the American ecosystem? And I think when you've been around some of these interesting companies, you, you get a much you get a much better feel for for what's going to work, what's not going to work, and and you have a lot more inside information because you can call down a bunch of people to figure out what what's likely going to happen in the future and what's not. I mean, you you never have perfect information on any of these things. I mean, that, that's mm-hmm. why venture people run a portfolio, but but you do get you you do get good at you do get good at these things. And there is a persistence effect uh, in in venture, and and so. We were pretty confident, uh, and I keep saying we because I started this with another American who had a very similar background to me, that we could kind of replicate what we'd seen in the Bay Area in Europe, and, and there were some really good conditions to doing this. And at the time that we started, kind of nobody was really doing this in Europe. It was it was really tiny numbers. Um, so that you know now now there are a lot of competitors. You know, Sequoia is on the ground here as well. So you know we can't be sleepy as a firm. But you know when we started, you know there was almost nobody, right? So I, I used to joke that you, if you found an interesting company. And you gave them a term sheet. There really were no other term sheets on the table, right? At, at that time, so it was pretty easy to actually do this job. And I think that kind of explains a lot of why we ended up with so many interesting companies in the first fund. 
because you know companies need money and if no one else is going to give them the money you just kind of have to wake up and go to work right to be able to do well right nice that's the benefit of starting early i love it so uh before we go on uh to discuss the major topic for discussion for this episode let's start with a simple standard question that i ask pretty much every single investor that comes up on fundraising radio so uh through Hawks and Ventures, what do you like to invest in, in terms of uh, stage industry and average uh, check size that you write? Yeah, so we're a seed stage firm and over the years, seed rounds have gotten a little bit bigger as have we, uh, as because because those two things are kind of linked. Uh, our, our typical check is anywhere from kind of half a million up to about 5 million, uh, pick your currency. They're all kind of the same these days, USD, GBP, you know, Euro, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. Um, and you know, in terms of in terms of sector, we're we're, we're software centric, but but software is so broad these days that that you know we're, we we kind of focus on all kinds of different things. You know, my you know one of our kind of home run investments was was Deliveroo, which is a food delivery company, kind of similar to DoorDash in the U.S. For people who are not familiar with with kind of the rest, you know, what's going on in the rest of the world. Um, and my last investment was a protein engineering company. Uh, that's able to simulate kind of disordered proteins uh, and, and hopefully be able to, you know, create much more novel, interesting drugs. So you can see these two companies really have nothing to do with each other. They're very, very, very different. One's very deep tech. One is, you know, one is much more of a consumer kind of marketplace. Um, we're pretty agnostic. I think what we look for is, you know, what's new in the industry? Why could that business be created today when it couldn't have been created, you know, six months, a year or two years ago? What's kind of changed that enables the business to get built? And, and if the business does get built and, and does turn out to be interesting, you know, will it turn out to be, you know, a five, 10, $50 billion company, you know, when it scales up, you know, so can it really truly get big? You know, other than that, everything else is kind of fair game kind of uh, for, for us, as long as it's, you know, as long as it kind of fits our parameters, we're not so, we're not so fussed about sector, et cetera. Right, so let's talk about getting big. Uh, the for the first fund that you've invested in, seventeen companies, two of them already IPO'd. So, can you tell us a little more about that? I mean, that's a huge success ratio. A lot of founders don't get even close to that. So, one of the reasons, as you already mentioned, is that you were one of the first people to start doing it. Are there any other, you know, uh, reasons for why you have such a high success ratio? And by the way, on our pre-interview call, you mentioned that. There is probably a third company out of that first batch that will IPO soon. So can you tell us a little more about how you chose those companies and what allowed them to grow so much? Yeah, so that first fund, which was 17, yeah, two, two IPOs already. Uh, the third one's announced that it's doing a SPAC, um, so it will go public as well. It will just be a nice. SPAC that this SPAC is funded. Um, hopefully that happens in the next kind of several months. Uh, usually it takes about three to four months from the announcement. That that uh, So the first one's a food delivery company, which is, which is Deliveroo. Uh, the second one was a cybersecurity business called Darktrace, um, and the third one was an AI healthcare company called called Babylon Health. And, and then we're also, you know, shareholders in Epic Games, which makes Fortnite. Um, but indirectly, one of our companies got acquired by by Epic, and so you know, for us, it's a large it's a large shareholding. But you know, in the context of Epic, which is a gigantic company now, um, mm -hmm. you know, we're we're pretty small shareholders. Um, and then I think we might have a fifth and a sixth that could actually turn out to be pretty big and whether they'll get nice. you know up to a billion or multi-billion is still PVD. So, you know, reasonably high hit rate, you know, and, and these are all very, very different companies from each other, right? From the gaming company, you know, um, Epic all the way up to Babylon, which is AI Healthcare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they were all brand new businesses and brand new markets. And we really do look for this. Um, so, you know, we're looking for, 
companies that we think are, are in these brand new categories of, of, of companies, you know, it, it could be something as prosaic as, you know, as, as delivery and logistics. Um, and, and there was a reason why Deliveroo could do logistics in the early days. And that was because, you know, smartphones became really inexpensive. And, you know, one of the benefits of having a smartphone is you get GPS and you kind of get the blue dot. And if you're going to run a delivery business where you have to deliver meals to people and you need to have them deliver usually more than one meal an hour. Now, the break is kind of somewhere between two mm-hmm. and three meals an hour. You really need to make sure they're not getting lost. And, you know, in places like London where there are lots of small streets and, and some of the streets, the house numbers aren't very visible and they are not always sequential like they are in the U.S. Uh, they, they kind of feel like they jump around kind of on one side of the street from the other. You know, you, you need to make sure that, that that extra 10 minutes that it might take someone to kind of find the door to the house is, is really valuable time. And so you really do need GPS to figure out, you know, if they're getting lost. Now, there was a similar company to Deliveroo, you know, almost almost 20 years ago in New York called called Cosmo. And they were trying to do something very, very similar. They're probably more like Instacart than, than, than Deliveroo. But, you know, they were trying to do this with two-way pagers. And, you know, that was kind of the, the new innovation or with, I think it, it may have been one-way pagers. And, you know, with pagers, you can communicate with the driver um, who's, who's kind of delivering. But, you know, if they get lost, et cetera, it's pretty hard to figure out what's going on. You're kind of in the dark, right? So you just have a very mm-hmm. basic sense. And, and to us, that was the, the novelty was, was that you could actually build that part of the tech stack. Um, and it was kind of obvious to us. And in, in London, you know, you find, and in, in Europe in, in, in general, Europe is probably even more risk averse than, than London. And you find a lot of people asking themselves, you know, all the what can go wrong type questions in, in mm-hmm. a business. And they kind of talk, you know, when, you, when, when that's your frame of reference, you know, you talk yourselves out of doing anything. And, you know, you generally will take a wait and see approach, you know, if, if, if that's how you think about the world. And, and you wait to see how the results are. In fact, my old firm, uh, Axel ended up writing the check into Deliveroo, but like about a year after we did. Um, and, and again, their frame of reference was, you know, this sounds this sounds like it could be interesting, but let's kind of see how it actually really happens. They wrote mm-hmm. a much bigger check than we did. We were the seed investors. Uh, you know, they wrote a $25 million check, so, you know, it's significantly nice. bigger. Um, but, uh, and, and that helped the company really, really grow. So, you know, kudos to them for, for writing the check. But, you know, they took a wait and see approach. And, and we generally don't ask the what can go wrong question. We ask the what if things go really right, you know, and 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 then how confident are we that, you know, that there's a good chance, never a perfect chance, but just a good chance that, that the things can actually go right. Um, and I think if you if you kind of have that frame of reference, you're probably more more of an early stage investor. I think if you're in a, if you're in a business Kind of like venture, you're probably going to have a decently high failure rate, right? I mean, we only anticipated kind of one of our companies would kind of go public and become a multi-billion-dollar company when we were forming the fund. I think what we found is a lot more companies were being born in Europe, and there were almost no investors asking the "what can go right" type questions. And so, a lot mm-hmm. of those businesses kind of found their way to us. And you know, our biggest regret was we just didn't have more capital to invest into more of these businesses. I mean, you know, it was it was kind of free money for a while. Um, it, it's no longer free. You know, there are a lot of other very good venture firms now. So, so we actually 100%. have to do quite good. And I think the other thing, you know, the you know, when we, when we met Darktrace, which is a cybersecurity business, and and the guys behind Darktrace had done this before. They were they were serial entrepreneurs. You know, they'd been around building a big enterprise software company before. And, and you know, when I first met them. They, they said, it's very nice that you're building a venture fund and, you know, kind of Europe or London needs more of these kinds of things, which, which is good. But, you know, you're not really right for us. And, you know, we're going to fund this company ourselves. And, you know, with all due respect, like we don't think venture people actually add all that much value to the cap table. <laughs> and we think they're kind of annoying uh, you know, to, to boot, right? Uh, so yeah, they're, they're very, they're very, 
So yeah, they're very polite about it and they do have a point. Um, and we ended up kind of sharing notes about the growth of a cybersecurity business that we knew really well in the Bay Area in California that, that was just about to go public at the time. And, and we you know, kind of passed on a bunch of our thoughts and, and kind of learnings from that business. And we were not investors in that company. We just happened to know socially a lot of the, the angel investors and the early employees and the founders um, were founder. Um, and so we passed along these lessons and then they went back and they actually double checked a lot of the information that we told them. And they called us back to weeks later and they said you know you actually have a lot more information about the growth of this company than that's kind of available in the public domain and so you must be more connected than we kind of gave you credit for and they only took our check because they wanted to kind of tap into that that wider network and that wider network was this network in silicon valley that we've kind of had um and so that's the other reason i think that we've been able to do well you know for the there are a lot of european founders who are probably kind of fall into the let's make europe great again type Type mentality, which is they're focused <laughs> on the national business. Um, you know, they want to be a French entrepreneur focused on the French market or a Spanish entrepreneur focused on the Spanish market. And and you can you can build scale in those markets where you couldn't do that maybe 20, 30 years ago. But for the few folks who want to build really truly global businesses, right? They kind of want to build the next the, the next Amazons of the world, which you know will never will we'll just never be a just a U.S. business. You can't build you know if you're if you're going to be really big, you're going to be a little bit more global uh, in, in your mindset and outlook. Um, so you know for those kinds of businesses, then then kind of our connections to the U.S. and our connections to Silicon Valley matter. You know for a lot of those kinds of businesses, they probably want money from the U.S. Something today like seventy five percent, maybe maybe like sixty five percent of the venture rounds of the like the really top performing companies in Europe at the series B, series C, series D type stage are, are done by US firms. And mm-hmm. that's not surprising in my mind, because when you think about the venture community, you think about who the greatest investors are in the world, they they primarily are in the Bay Area. So if you're you know a founder, you know, starting off in Latvia, you know, and you want to shoot for greatness, you know, it, it would be nice if you put Hoxton on your list. Like, you know, I, I'd be really pleased. But, you know, honestly, you're probably going to put, you know, Andreessen and Axel and Founders Fund and Sequoia on your list. And, and you're going to find a way to get to those kinds of investors and have them on your cap table. And we tend to serve as a pretty useful bridge in between those things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sometimes right. hard for someone from Latvia. And I'm, I'm mentioning the Latvia one because he happened to raise from one of those firms who are in the middle of closing documents right now. So I can't really quite say who it is, but it's one of the great funds in, in the US. And, <laughs> you know, it's hard to go from Latvia to one of the top firms in the world. But Absolutely, hopefully, yeah. you know, if you come and take a seed check from us, that gets a little bit easier. And so that's been a bit of a value add kind of thesis for us. And it, it's been working for us in terms of in terms of these companies. That's awesome. Let's talk about that. You know, go big, go global approach that you were having and you know, what can go right kind of approach. On our pre-interview call, you've stressed that, you know, while you're reviewing those companies, you always look at their plans to go global and specifically to start expanding to the United States or sometimes even China. Uh, so can you tell us a little more about that? How do you view if the company is actually going to go global, if it's possible for it to go global? Are there any major green flags for you when you're reviewing a term sheet, I mean, not a term sheet, but a pitch deck of a pre-seed or seed company. Uh, are there any parts of the pitch deck that can clearly tell you that, okay, this company has a decent chance of going to the US and being successful in the United States? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, it, it, in those early days, if you're a deep tech tech company, it's probably easier. If you're a deep tech tech company and you're the first one with the innovation, maybe the only one in the world with that innovation, and you're focused on the US market, you know, uh, apart from execution and 
getting there and kind of doing all the business stuff right that you need to do to succeed you know there's not that much risk um you know other than just execution you can you can kind of believe that thesis you know when you're more of a consumer company or you're more of an enterprise company and there might be like 5 10 15 other companies kind of in that field you know you really do have to believe that the company that you're writing the check to that's starting off at, you know in Europe you know which is probably in, to some degree like starting off with you know a bit of a, a, a you know the opposite of an edge right it's it's being hampered a little bit you've got to believe that they can actually scale in the US and kind of overtake everybody in the US even if they're mm-hmm. the first one in the market or even if they have the best product in the market and, and you know that 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 the, the the stuff that really matters there is kind of traction and you know being able to show that you can you can do this stuff. You know, a lot of our businesses, even though they're seed stage businesses, you know, they end up end up with a bunch of customers in the US from the earliest days, you know, something like 30, 40, 50 percent of their revenue and, and their revenue is like tiny, tiny, tiny numbers. So this one that <laughs> you know we did in Latvia, you know, that you know, started in Latvia, you know, founder got out of Latvia and went to the UK. And, but, you know, some of his earliest customers were in the U.S. and in L.A. and New York um, because it was all word of mouth driven, um, you know, so so that 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 kind of tells you that, you know, that there, there's something there in the business, you know, that that you know, someone who's a customer is kind of seeing the value add right, uh, by, by by picking a company, you know, by picking a product that's built by, you know, you know, a faraway place, right? Uh, they, they don't even know and don't, they just find the product really valuable. So so we look for those kinds of things um, more than anything else. That kind of tells us, you know, that, and we'd love to, we'd love to see more businesses kind of expand into China. I mean, if you think about the two largest kind of you know, homogenous big markets in the world, they're, they're America and China. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the challenge in China is I think, you know, even if you're Google, it's hard to penetrate China. Oh, you yeah. know, it, it's not always a fair, it's not always a fair economy for outsiders. Um, but, but America is really fair i mean it's hard it's expensive you know it's 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 uh, no one said you know this game was easy but but it is definitely open for business and you know maybe in the pandemic it's a little bit harder to travel but you know that's going to go away at some point um hopefully soon but you know you can definitely get to the u.s and be able to scale up in the u.s and there's no there's nothing that stops you from being able to do that we've you know so that that's kind of that's kind of how we've thought about it you know historically we've been pretty anti you know, businesses that only focus on the on the on the domestic market mm-hmm. in any one yep. of the European countries, because you know Europe is not one place; it's a lot of different countries, and you know none of those countries in the aggregate they're about the same size as the U.S. and China. But you know none of the none of the countries themselves are that big compared to the U.S. and, and China. I mean, Germany is a big country, France is a big country, UK is a big country, but it's not it's not as big as the U.S. But you know, over time, as these tech markets have just gotten deeper and deeper, you know. I think you actually can build $10 billion companies in, in, in these places. And we're starting to revisit whether that might be useful. You know, what we're just solving for is scale. The, the challenge with the domestic ones, though, is, you know, you could be building, you know, the insurance company of record in France, and then Lemonade goes public in the U.S. and decides to expand to France, too. And then, you know, it's it's hard, right? Like, you can see how the the, the American one can compete with the European one. You know, because Europe is not homogenous, you, it's hard to see how the French one can go into the U.S. market and and then win in the U.S. So you you kind of get you kind of get put into a little bubble, and that bubble isn't even always fully protected because you know you could have a threat from the outside, which is you mm-hmm. know which is, which is the American company coming in. And, and you know, if you're trying to do this job really really well as a venture person, you want to find companies that are gonna ideally you know build themselves up to under billion dollar plus companies i mean the markets are deep enough to be able to do that these days uh you know so you but you can still build i think billion dollar companies just focusing on the domestic market which 10 years ago you probably couldn't so we're trying to figure out like what our view is there but 
But in general, I'd say like 80% of our businesses, you know, have this ambition to kind of scale up all over and, and scaling up in all of these businesses, the hardest, the hard, the single hardest thing. I mean, these guys all have good ideas and guys could be girls, you know, we can get them a check. So, you know, and then they have money in the bank. And then the hardest thing is, is, is hiring people and, and building right. up your organization. I mean, you know, that, that's where, you know, that's something that we can't do as a venture person. We can help, but, you know, we can't really solve that. I mean, you know, that, that's, that's what the founders have to do and kind of build the teams that can kind of take these companies to the, to, to those kinds of levels, you know, and, and it's hard, right? If you have a distributed team, you have some people working in the U S some people working in Latvia, some people working in the UK. I mean, you know, I have a lot. I give these guys a lot of credit because you know it's very, very difficult to build these kinds of businesses. But if you're shooting for kind of you know the number one prize, that's kind of what you have to do. And and you can tell when someone is shooting for for that kind of success level, or whether they'd just be happy building you know a good business. And you know, good businesses are good, but they're not always the greatest investments from a venture perspective. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. People keep in mind that even if you know that your business is going to be profitable for like. 95% chance of that being, of that happening. If it's not a billion dollar business, most likely VCs are just not interested. That's how the structure works. So let's talk about some of the red flags that you might see while talking to an early stage founders. Is there something besides, of course, the founder straight up telling you that, you know, I'm going to focus on France. That's, that's what my plan is. I don't want to go to the United States. Are there any other red flags that a founder might give off while talking to you about the expansion to the US or expansion to pretty much any country other than their homeland? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, founders who are not as focused on go to market. So, you know, classic kind of enterprise software type businesses, you know, when you when you think about the evolution of an enterprise software business, you know, you come up with an idea, you start with an idea, you come up with a product, you kind of get your product market fit working because you test out with some customers and you realize, you know, customers actually kind of like what I'm building. That probably takes like a year to three, like it takes a bit of time, right, to kind of build the right kind of product for for folks and to be able to show that, you know, there actually is market fit. You know, the next probably five years to seven years of your journey as, as the entrepreneur, the CEO of that business is building the go-to-market uh, mechanism. It, it's largely like an enterprise software is very much of a playbook, so it's actually easier to explain. Um, you know, it, a lot of it's like the blocking and tackling of building like good sales teams on the ground, then being able to scale up those sales teams, kind of said, you know, said, said geographies kind of set motivation like set comp plans set quotas etc i mean there's a lot of mechanics and there's lots of resources online to read about these mechanics about how to actually mm -hmm. build the sales machine but you know probably for the next you know several years probably five years of your life it's going to be like in the trenches like building sales so you could be the world's best product person or the world's best engineer in terms of like coming up with this stuff but if you're not prepared to do that hard work on the sales side which might feel a little bit beneath you if you're if you're coming from product and engineering that's a bit of a warning sign and it's not usually until like year seven year eight year nine of that journey of the company that you start turning into like a platform a lot of people think platforms kind of start from day one they don't usually start from day one you know you build your product you scale your product you're now getting to scale and you start finding other things to do with your customer base and with your product suite to kind of expand out so you build a bigger and bigger moat. You know, most product people want to go straight from product to platform without doing all that heavy, messy work of the sales side. Someone's got to do it. You're not going to build your company to several hundred million in revenue without doing without doing the sales stuff. So so people come in and, and aren't thinking about go to market, aren't thinking about sales. 
kind of scare us, right? Because you can easily just be an, entirely focused on the on the on the product and the engineering, and not so worried about sales. You know, consumer internet's a little bit di- a little bit different, right? Because you ship a product and you'll see immediately what the active usage is going to be. But you know, if you're building mm-hmm. a consumer product, you know, and your and your metrics, and and it's a very metric oriented business in in some respects because so much of this stuff happens in real time, right? You can immediately see what people are doing, and you're not getting good engagement, and your retention is not good. I mean, that that starts getting that becomes a warning sign because again, when you build a good product, you see exactly what the behavior is going to happen, you know, on, on the user side with with you know to that product, and, and you can see that stuff, and you have to really care about that stuff, and there's a whole bunch of little tweaks that you have to make, and you know, retention is often the, the red flag. Usually, you know, you get a product right, you get people using it, and then they don't kind of stick around and, and, and continue using it. You've got you've to be able to get that stuff working in, in order to be able to be able to scale the business. Um, you know, but there, you know, we're, again, we're, we're optimists, right? So we, we're, we're right. trying to figure out all the things that are going right versus all the things that are going wrong, which is probably why I'm struggling to answer this. I mean, you, you often, I mean, it's weird. You often know when you see it, like, you you really do like you know, someone walks in the door and i i heard this about an, another venture said it so it's kind of another venture person said it it was peter fenton but like the person who walks through the door makes you think about the world in a totally different way and you all of a sudden like kind of the light bulb goes off and you're like yes i see why there's a need for x and i see exactly how this thing is gonna maybe not exactly but i see why this is going to scale and then you got to write the check and you, you you won't know the rest of the details until you kind of write the check and every investment that i think we've regretted doing has largely it's largely been a non-investment it's people who come in through the door mm-hmm. that you know we kind of really wanted to write the check to because you know the light bulb kind of went off and then we couldn't intellectually justify it to ourselves like for instance we had a neobank kind of come in that was monzo you know monzo is now a several billion dollar company you know it's had some tough times as well because of the pandemic it's you know it's gone from nothing to something really big and, and you know we saw it and then it was like a national business focused on the uk it's regulated right can you really build the next generation bank and get to scale you know we asked tom this one question which is like how are you going to get customers and 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 his answer was like it was so contrived it was it was like i'm going to hire an agency i'm going to do some marketing it was like that you know all the blocking all all the things that you would kind of it was a totally generic answer it's all the things you would expect someone to do without any insight as to like the the real customers, not the mechanics of how are you going to go get customers. It's like why are people going to choose you? And you could you couldn't really answer that. And it turns out like a year later when they finally shipped their product, that took them a while to build you know, a bank. You have to go get regulated, et cetera. So a year later, mm-hmm. when they, you know they were in the market. You know they built a, a card that was a particular color, and it became super trendy among millennials and Gen <laughs> Zers. Um, you know, I'm not so sure he knew the answer to that question at the time that we were asking, which is why he gave us. But, you know, you could see that there was something special in this company and in him. And like, you kind of want to write the check. You just can't into like when you're writing your investment and when you're like, you know, biggest risk, you know, getting a customer base, you know, people switching their bank mm-hmm. from their bank, yeah. you know, why are they going to do this? And like, you know, big question mark, right? Like you can't fill it in, you know, you know, you can explain maybe how they're going to run their marketing, but you can't really explain why people are going to switch it. And and we talked our way out of it. And it was a, it was a dumb decision, right? In, in hindsight, um, you know, everything that we've done like this, we met another company in France that were building like a, a tracking, uh, 
like kind of a GPS location thing, something very similar to Find My Friends on your iPhone. But at the time, the iPhone Find My Friends feature was really battery consumptive. So you didn't want to let it run. They'd figure mm-hmm. out how to make this stuff non-battery consumptive. Like we really like these guys. Like, you know, you, you could see that they were trying to build something that was really interesting. And, you know, we just couldn't see how that could turn into a billion dollar company. Like we thought, well, what was going to happen is going to get acquired by someone else who's going to have this as a feature, you know, of their products that, you know, Two years later, they got acquired by by Snapchat by Snap for two hundred fifty million dollars. Nice. You know, when you fire up Snap today and like you look at this and like you see the heat map of where people are, that's all their stuff, right? And, and nice. you know that they fed in. You know, we wouldn't have made a. It would not be the same kind of investment for us as a Deliveroo or a Dark Trace. But like in two years, you know, at the price that we were probably coming in at the seed round, we would have returned our entire fund over. Right? And you know. We again, we just intellectually talked our way out of it because we didn't think it would become big enough. But we saw the light bulb, you know, happen. We spent like weeks with these guys trying to figure out mm-hmm. like, why we should do it. I think when the light bulb kind of goes off like that, and you kind of, yeah, and the entrepreneur walks in, they kind of educate you as to why this is going to be interesting, and you kind of believe it. You, you know, you kind of want to write the check in those kinds of scenarios. Um, so, uh, yeah, so so hopefully, hopefully that answers your question a little bit, and we're looking at notes. It sure does. So on this note, we're moving on to the last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. So uh, is there something particular that you want the listener to do as soon as this episode is over? No, I mean, if you're building a company in Europe or you know of a company in Europe, like very selfishly, like find your way to us and talk to us. Like we love seeing deals and you know, we're only as good as, you know, the next investment that we make. So we may have all this, all this success, but we've got to think about the future. You know, if, you know, if you're a founder or, or an engineer or product manager or a salesperson and you're in kind of, you know, in Europe and you want to join one of our companies, like come and talk to us. And if we can be helpful, you know, feel free to shoot me a note. I'm very active on Twitter. It's just H Kanji, K-A-N-J-I. Um, and my email is really easy. It's just my first name, Hussein, with an E-H-U-S-S-E-I-N uh, at Hoxton, H-O-X-T-O-N dot V-C. Perfect. Two, five point something percent of our listeners in Europe, people definitely check it out. <laughs> American friends, still check it out. Might be super useful anyways. And um, one last question, actually, after call to action. I, yeah. I don't usually ask questions after call to action, but in this episode, I will. So let's, let's talk just a little more about this uh, light bulb. So the founder who is just charismatic, you know, he or she turns on your light bulb, you know that you want to invest in them, but there is something missing, you know, how can founders figure out what is missing and, you know, fix it? Are you telling them that right away? Are you making any suggestions or do you just, you know, tell them your go-to-market strategy is complete dog shit, come back when you fix it. How exactly does that part work? We usually end up in a bit of a, a dialogue with our founders. Almost all the investments that we made are, are via references, usually from founders, usually weirdly enough from founders we've turned down who then send us stuff that kind of feels more like it would fit with us or they think it's going to fit mm-hmm. more with us, which is surprising. So like we, we tend to have good discussions with folks and, you know, we recognize we're not, we're by no means the experts on this stuff because, you know, our industry is basically an, an industry of exceptions. So, you know, people can make one, you know, you, all you need is one exception, right? To kind of, you know, prove that the rule is actually not true in, yeah. in the general. Um, so, you know, so, and, and, and charisma isn't what we're necessarily looking for. I mean, it's great to be a charismatic founder, but it's this light bulb moment about like how the world works, that it's, 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 a li- it's a little bit more intellectual, right? It's like, this is why this thing is broken. And this is why this solution is actually the right thing. You know, the founder's charisma is great, but it's, it's largely that like kind of, 
the light bulb is largely on this. Here's why this problem is so interesting, or here's why this solution is so interesting. You know, I give you another anecdote. We had a founder come in and, and she was super bright. She came out of an augmented reality startup that was a unicorn. And she was like one of the lead product managers there. And she teamed up with one of the lead engineers that kind of worked as a duo and shipped a lot of the products inside of that particular company. Um, and she came to us and she wanted to raise kind of a two, three, four million dollar seed round. Um, and they had no traction, no con like they were building a gaming company, no nothing in the market, no metrics, not even like an early prototype build of the, of, of the game. Mm -hmm. and, and I was... I was convinced that like it was going to be pretty impossible for her to be able to raise this money. Um, and, and I told her, and, and she's now told me like that first meeting was like a hard meeting. She's like, I now realize like you're very direct, but you know, you, you don't sugarcoat <laughs> the pill. But like, you know, it was, it was a bit of a punch to the face. Like when you told me that, but, but oh, I yeah. really liked her. So like, like in terms of like, I, I thought what she was working on and, and, and her, like it was, it was again, that light bulb type moments. So I had her meet my, my partner, um, like a few days later, I sent her an email saying like, I'm sorry for giving you any hard feedback. Right. But like, <laughs> come in, and, and, and we're not the right kind of fund for you because we're not going to write the two, three, four million dollar check, but if you don't think it's gonna be a waste of time, come and meet my partner. And, and, and I'm, I'm using this selfishly to see what we think. And he, he, he ended up having the same reaction I did to, to her and kind of what she was building. And we went back to her and said, look, we're, I don't think you're ready for like the big type round. I mean, two, three, four is actually not big, but like, you know, I just think you need to prove that you could, you at least have to build a prototype. And so like, what does it cost to build the prototype? It turns out it's like a little bit under a million. It's like in the hundreds of thousands. And, and we said, we'd write the check and kind of wrote that check, you know, six months or eight months later, she had a prototype index, which is a really large venture fund, uh, both in Europe as well as in the US ended up writing her seed round. We kind of doubled down alongside of her. She's like, a, you know, hopefully a couple of months away now from, from launching her, her first game it's almost ready to go and, nice. and so you know you know that was one where i can like i can tell you quickly like you know that we were we were turning her down right and we kind of doubled down we doubled back to her and said like take a small check instead and and, and taking the small check our first thing was like you know I don't want you to not succeed. I just think what the, the bar that you're setting yourself up for is more likely to fail. But I mm -hmm. think if you went and asked people for like 500K, 750K, et cetera, you, you would get it in a heartbeat. And then you could actually go prove the metrics that you kind of want to prove and, and, and kind of be able to build. And, and you know, we, we do stuff like that all the time. In that case, it was a fundraising type thing, but sometimes it's go to market type thing. You know, we have these conversations, hopefully they're constructive. I think that's a reason why we get so much referral business from founders that we've turned down. But, you know, sadly, our business is trying to find these businesses that are going to be great. And, and we have, you know, our ratio right now is kind of ridiculously high. We don't need to preserve that, but we do want to build, a, <laughs> you know, we do want to, we do want to build big companies like there. And we don't have a lot of capital to spend on things like if we could invest in a hundred times the companies we could, we would, but like, you know, we're, we have an obligation on our, on our investor side to kind of, you know, get the returns as high as possible, but we try and be constructive in, in, in that process. Absolutely. On this really optimistic note, we're going to wrap it up. Um, again, repeating call to action. There's going to be a, a links to Hussein's uh, LinkedIn and Twitter in the description of this episode. There is also, of course, going to be a link to Hoxton Ventures. So European people, definitely check it out. And my call to action is going to be check out the description of this episode. Also, I'm going to leave a link to firstbase.io for those people who are in Europe and want to expand to the US. Check it out. I recently started working for them. So there is also going to be a 15% discount code for you guys. And yeah, check out the description of this episode. As usual, have a good day.